Well, I'm Mel. And I'm Tosh. And welcome to another episode of Mahogany Mammology, an online dialogue pertaining to the concerns and carefree parenting of Black motherhood. Well, not too long ago, we discussed uh, school choice during COVID-19, where I feel we only like scratched the surface in discussing our options as families as we move forward for fall 2020 and beyond, because who knows, you know. Today we'll discuss one of those factors that may, and I'll put an asterisk next to that, contribute to our decisions our families are making, um, the wealth gap of education. Thanks to social media, um, not only have we heard about the expansion of learning pods, We've also hearing other options like, like, uh, like that concierge type teachings where teachers come to their homes. While it may not sound like anything different than some of us may do, um, like the added, well, well, I'll say piece de resistance, is that some will go as far as renting studio space in addition to compensation just to hold this kind of environment. Essentially, it's creating a small school for themselves if it's affordable. But that is, but is that something that is attainable for us? What else should we be looking for to bridge or even surpass the educational gap or debt um, wealth during this time? We'll discuss that and more with our guest mammologist, Jennifer Henry and Miss Talitha Anyabuele. Did I say it right? Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Jennifer shaking her head, but we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we, we work on our pronunciation. I um, know. She just told me, and I just messed it up. Just like that. <laughs> just like that. But we do welcome back Jennifer Henry as she's a returning guestmologist from season one, episode nine, Black Families and Homeschooling. So y'all can go listen to that when you have a quick second and a glass of wine. Um, she has she actually studied psychology and biology at Howard University and went on to a doctoral program at New York University Center for Neuroscience, where she was at where, where she was a McCracken Fellow and an adjunct instructor. She earned a master's in master's of philosophy in neuroscience. As a mom, she became fascinated with the intersection of neuroscience psychology, and early childhood education. She's combined these inter uh, interests to be an award-winning private school using her neuro-nature, neuro-nurture, neuro-nurture, because <laughs> I know it, I'm trying to get it right, sis, neuro-nurture preschool curriculum and pedagogy. She blogs about her life. She's a fantastic mom and wife and ventures, or you can definitely find that out more on milkbrainblog.com, and we'll have that in the show notes. Um, she is the founder of the HBCU-ish by education products and programs that exclusively uh, serve our Black children and their multicultural allies. So we welcome you back to our show, Jennifer. Yay, welcome. Yes, and our other guest, Ms. Tap. 
Talitha Onyabuele, thank you, is the founding director of RISE Consulting educational consulting, where they provide African-centered curriculum, as well as education and cultural diversity training programs to parents, educators, and schools. Prior to her consulting business, um, Talitha was a curriculum developer and specialist for True North Rochester Preparatory School and Uncommon Schools, principal of Sakara Youth Institute in Tallahassee, Florida, Behavioral Modification Specialist for Hillsborough County Schools, as well as Micro School Founder and, um, in Singapore and in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Talitha is a homeschool parent to two Imani geniuses for eight years. Welcome. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. So we're just going to kind of just jump right into it. Um, Obviously, you know, a lot of moms have a lot of concerns going on. So have you ladies um, had any questions or concerns that you're hearing from mothers in regards to learning in the current climate? Oh, yes. (laughs) Everybody's concerned. Yes. And what, what, what might some of those be? Some of, some of the families feel just completely overwhelmed with the aspect of figuring out what curriculum is right for them, what type of schooling is right for them, how to actually provide the education at home that will keep the children ready to rejoin school whenever they have to do that, um, how to benchmark it. I mean, the list, are, the list is multifaceted um, and the mm-hmm. concerns are valid because a lot of people did not choose this for themselves. They were thrust into it by the pandemic. And so um, they're right now just trying to gather all the resources and, and get answers. So I've been getting a lot of questions about mostly resources and materials to support homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think um, a lot of parents, when I talk to them, they are overwhelmed with the freedom of options because prior to this pandemic, we were programmed and indoctrinated into a system of step one, step two, step three, and that meant traditional school settings, that meant um, matriculating in the way that the majority status quo did. And now all of a sudden, we are, as Jennifer said, thrust into a position where we have options. And I know when I give my children, for example, more than three options, they're just completely flustered and overwhelmed and trying to weigh the pros and cons of what works best. And when you are a parent trying to make decisions that impact your children, it becomes even more overwhelming because there is no one right answer. And that's what most parents are looking for. And there just isn't one. There isn't, I cannot tell the same two, the two different parents the same answer um, that best fits their family needs. So everybody is overwhelmed with the idea that they really have to come up with the best solution for their familial needs. And it's going to be very different from what they've done before and possibly very different from their peers. And that is scary and overwhelming for a lot of parents right now. Right. I feel like, you know, in the beginning, well, not the beginning of the pandemic, but just the thought behind the homeschooling, it was very much trying to follow that model like school at home. 
mm-hmm. you know, which is like, you know, from what I've heard and speaking to, you know, Jennifer, you know, that is absolutely not the case. You don't want to replicate that at all. And so I think we, it's kind of a, almost an unlearning kind of situation to try to do. So I don't know. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I think that there's so many various options and then with everything constantly changing, you know, from the district side or, you know, if you're in a private school, what is the private school trying to do? And do you go from private to public or vice versa? And yeah, it can, it's definitely a, an overwhelming thing um, to try to figure out for one. And then if you have multiple children, I'm sure there, then you got to take a look at what each personality really with each child to figure out what's going to make sense. And then combine it with your own life. Yeah, that's definitely a lot to take mm-hmm. on. Why do you so, think that race or like class will affect us even more? Do you think that even affects us in our decision making? Um, I didn't hear the first part of your question. What did you oh, did you say? Uh, why do you think race, class, or privilege will affect us? Oh, I mean, it affects everything. I mean, this, this country was built on that. So first of all, if you go back to the history of education, we were never included in its formation anyway. So now that we are outside of it um, and we are compounding all of those problems that we just talked about, those decisions, those options, being overwhelmed with that, with the fact that we are affected by the pandemic at higher rates than anybody else, just like Malcolm X said, when the country gets a cold, we get the flu. So we are affected more, and that's because we have more pre-existing conditions. We have poor healthcare services in our communities. Um, we are less likely to go see a physician right away because of our skepticism and distrust of healthcare physicians. So we're dealing with the onset of the pandemic in a much higher rate than our counterparts. We're also de- dealing with poverty at a much higher rate than any other group, and we're also dealing with unemployment especially now at a much higher rate than any of the groups. So all of those things converge to create this perfect storm. And the last thing, unfortunately, most parents are having to deal with is the education of their children, not because they don't care, not because it's not a priority, um, but my husband likes to create this analogy of you have to attack the alligator closest to the boat. So we're all in this little boat and there are these alligators all around us and the first one right next to us is eviction, the threat of eviction and my unemployment and my health. That's the one I'm dealing with first. My child's education is an alligator much farther away. I'm going to have to deal with that. But right now I need a roof over my head. I need food on my table. I need to care for my ailing mother who's also living with me and unemployed. That's the alligator closest to the boat. So most parents are dealing with those situations first and education is a much further distant problem though it's still pressing and still vital to all of us so mm-hmm. totally and, and just to go a little bit deeper into what talitha is saying i was reading an article on on forbes from july 19th and it was titled how educational inequality in america could be impacted by the homeschooling pod frenzy what Yes. And so it was very interesting because right out of the gate, they they talk about how classism is how a lot of these things are not intentional necessarily. So, for example, 
you're making pies with people who you know. And how do you know people? It's by who you work with, who you live by, who your kids go to school with. So right out of the gate, there's segregation. And it's not necessarily, it is definitely race-specific if we're talking about public schools. But when you get into the private school sector, it's more socioeconomic, right? So you can have a mixture of families of different cultural backgrounds in the private school sector that are now grouping their pods together, but still we have a different type of ism that's happening in the groupings. So they listed a couple of different isms that are being impacted or or, uh, increased, um, exacerbated, shall we say, by this phenomenon. And that's classism, which is obvious. Talitha touched on the racism and the classism. Then there's ableism as well. So kids that have special education needs or they have learning difficulties or they have different differing abilities like they need visual support they need um a different support for their learning disability these children are also not necessarily being served by all the pods because people are already overwhelmed by the alligators closest to them as Talitha said, but then when their child is not impacted by that same ableism or that same ability difficulty or, or um, ability issue, that's not an alligator closest to their boat. So necess- their pod school or their micro school is not necessarily going to have the tools to address that. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different things at play beyond classism and racism that are going to impact the gap that we're already seeing in achievement. And the high schools can actually exacerbate that unless we're being intentional about how we're structuring them. I'm glad you touched on that because you touched on a couple of other things. Um, Some questions that I had down the pipeline. We'll get to that. But I want to focus on one, particularly within the black race. And that's the classism issue. And so, you know, I want to talk about it. You know, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. You know, um, is there a class issue in education? And you basically answer that question among the black population in America. I think black people are finally getting the wake up call of what I call the myth of the middle class right now. And so we have really romanticized this concept that there is such a thing as a black middle class. And we think it's synonymous with white middle class. When we think about the fact that we have less than 1% of the wealth, the same as we have right at antebellum, that actually is not true. There is a range of poverty and it's a pretty wide range of poverty. And because poverty impacts us so gravely, like to the point of death, we look at black families who are in that position where death is more immediate because of their, their poverty, um, as someone who is a little bit inferior in terms of socioeconomic class to those of us who death is a little bit prolonged, even though we're also dealing with pre-existing conditions and everything else that comes with poverty. Um, and so we think we're different. We look down on um, those who are using governmental resources and assistance and things like that, thinking that we are that much different when we're really just one plantation, I'm sorry, one paycheck away from being in the same position. And we are still beholden to corporations and anybody else that says we are good enough to still work there. And as soon as they say we are not, we are one check 
away from being in that same position. And so we, we like to now realize, okay, wait a minute, this is actually pretty bad. Like I'm actually in the worst position. We've taken pay cuts, you know, unemployment has affected all of us. Cause even those of us who have a little bit of change, a little bit of coin, we're maybe one family removed from having to assist somebody else. I know money in my household goes out to several other households. And that's true for most of my peers who have just a little bit of coin and it can't go very far. Like we just have a little bit, but we're helping serve multiple other households because none of us are trust fund babies. I don't know any black trust fund babies. I don't know anyone that comes from triple generational wealth. Um, and so we're starting to recognize that, that we are not, there is no middle class. We're just all in this same boat that the reason King was actually killed by the government is not because of anything to do with race, but because he started addressing economics and dealing with poverty. And then uh, white impoverished people started recognizing that they were the same as black impoverished people. And that was a problem. The government did not want that. Um, so yeah, that brings up something else, but we're, right starting on, to understand, <laughs> we're starting to understand that yes, uh, we are all in the same boat with the same alligators surrounding us very closely because there is no real middle class. We may have a little bit of coin, but that can be snatched away very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. I think the classism also has some other really real considerations, though. While classism in itself is obviously something that we should all be very aware of, just like you should be anti-racism, you need to be anti-classism as well. There are some real factors to consider, like the fact that those that are... The, the ones that we traditionally view as, what, what is the term that they've been using now? Um, the frontline workers. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are going to be the ones that are, are more greatly exposed to the risk of COVID. And so when mm-hmm. you're thinking about building a pod school, quite frankly, the point of a pod, pod school is to reduce the risk of exposure. So there is something that's, that's being forced upon the decision. And that consideration is being forced upon families as well. Do we want to take the risk because we know that if I don't, if I'm not deliberately anti-classism, right, in the way I structure my pod school, then I know that I'm going to be playing into this gap myself. Mm-hmm. But then in being anti-classism in my structuring, what risks am I exposing my children to that undermine the whole point of pod school? Because if I have, for example, a family where the mom and the dad both work in grocery stores, Right. They're coming into contact with COVID every day in different ways or if they're coming and the like. Right. We can come up with if they're working as orderlies in hospitals. These are Mm -hmm. jobs that are historically occupied by black and brown families. Mm -hmm. So these are the ones that are most at risk. And then these are the considerations that families are being forced to calculate in who they include in these pod schools and micro schools. And there's no answer. There's no, there's no right or wrong answer. How do you tell somebody, well, you need to expose this, this risk. You have to do this to expose, you have to expose your family to this risk. How do you, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you force that upon people in order for the gap to not be exacerbated by our own black pod schools? Right. I'm just posing a question. I'm just, I'm just posing a question. I don't have an answer because I am, my family Ourselves, we're faced with the same decision. What type of risk do we do we um, levy? What type of 
how do we consider who to include? And, and then also to that point, you know, yes, absolutely. I agree with the, the part of the frontline worker, but also a big chunk of that frontline worker is a healthcare worker too, you know, and that is of varying salaries, right? And depending on the schedule, that kind of pushes us almost in that um, uh, schedule where depending if you have, if you are in a two family um, household, you may have to put the child in school because you got to work a 16 hour shift. That too. Yeah. You are putting yourself at, you know. And I think most of the families. I think the sexism thing goes both ways. The Mm -hmm. is not, I gave the example of those that are the workers like an orderly, but it goes for somebody is a surgeon. These are still the same classism considerations, though. I just gave one end of the spectrum. But in in that same spectrum, you still have frontline workers that are earning $400,000 a year and you still have to consider, do I want to expose my child to what that family is being exposed to on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. So classism is being impacted by the pod school and choicing and grouping on all ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Right. The difference though is that surgeon can hire someone to come into their home for the more concierge education. Oh, sure. They don't, they're not forced to decide between going to the brick and mortar school or praying that they get included in someone's micro school. Yeah, I know. And I use the surgeon as like the most extreme, you know, example, but a not extreme example would be a nurse. With a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my sister's situation. My sister is a nurse. And so she mm-hmm. was, she's definitely in that situation of, you know, what do I do? You know, if I, and so she has been working with other parents who have similar, um, who are in similar fields because they're all the same level of risk. And so if they educate their own children together, they have different rotating schedules, they can come up with their own homeschool co-op, you know, but she has the wherewithal to do that. Not everyone does. That's true. That's true. And I was just, I post that question in the sense that like, you know, just full disclosure, you know, I have kids that are in private school, but the thing about it, I think, so, I think a, a lot of people have that beside, like if you, if you've placed your kid in private school, you know, there's, a, there's that correlation that when you have a little bit more change, you know, um, and therefore you, you would have the opportunity, right. To create that kind of learning pod, you know, with a higher socioeconomics and blah, 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 and this, that, and the third. Um, whereas I'm thinking like, you know, not all private schools are built the same, especially in the, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and so, you know, I just, I just kind of was wondering, you know, just kind of making sure people understand that, like, you know, it's not, it's not there, you know, it's not there, so. And I think it depends on the private school as well, because um, each private, like you said, not all private schools are, have the same history, have the same foundation or background of funding. And so if you compare a school like um, where my son is in private school, it is predominantly black. The tuition is a is a small percentage of like a hockaday or a Jesuit tuition. So 
you have you you do have families there that are on still financial aid. So you still have a varying amount of socioeconomic uh, groupings within a, a, the school where my son is, where it's historically mm-hmm. Right. But then if you take it to Hockaday, you still have that same type of grouping because the black girls that are there, they are majority on financial aid as well. Not paying that 30 something thousand dollars a year. And they're being bused, some of them in groups all the way across the city in order to attend the school there. So even within the private school sector, you still have like you know, complications that don't make it so easy to just decide based on school what it is because still race comes into play and historical disenfranchisement of black people where we are, what is it, 59% of the median white household income. This is the same situation that we're dealing with regardless of the private school because maybe your family has it, but your aunt doesn't. So like Talitha said, money's going in different ways. Right, right. It's still not cut and dried when you when you're looking at race within mm-hmm. private schools. It's still not so cut and dried, and we don't reflect the population of the private school just because we're there. Sure, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's unfortunate though because we're trying to. I put out a call of action because I looked at this as a as a great opportunity. I also recognize that I sit in a place of privilege. So I'm I'm very well aware of my privilege in that I can homeschool my children. Not everyone can. That is a privilege um, that I greatly appreciate. And I try to extend whatever I can do to other families who do not have that privilege. But I look at this, you know, just trying to look at it from the glass half full as this opportunity for us to reconnect with the structure of our original education and teaching our children about who they are for real. And, you know, coming out of the indoctrination of a Eurocentric education, I said, this is great. We can come up with micro schooling would be great. I've been studying and creating micro schools for over a decade now before they were even called that before they were called learning. They have all these cool names, learning pods, micro schools. They were just, you know, little learning centers before. Um, And so now. I put the call of action to parents, like, just find me one educator. I will train them. I will train them in the curriculum. I'll help provide the resources they need to educate the children. I just need you to find that educator. And it's been like pulling teeth. There, there are just, there are no, there's no one. <laughs> there's no one available to actually provide that service of opening their home whether it's someone who has children or just an educator who doesn't want to go back to the traditional classroom. These are real businesses, viable businesses. So the micro school industry um, last year was a $1.2 billion industry globally. So we're talking about real money. And we look at some of the highest competitors in this country. All If you look at the top 10 micro school licensing companies, they're all white. They're all white. Right. And so this is an opportunity for us to get into this space. Here I am creating the opportunity to get into this space. All I needed was the human resources. And I could not, I still have not found 10. I have three. I have three in my first cohort group. I have not found 10 educators across the country who are able to open their home and provide this service of education to 10 or less children in their home. That was the ask. Um, and so it really is like, okay, so what is this? What is this about? I know I could do it. I recognize that a lot of it is because of the pandemic. So I know if it were not for the pandemic, maybe more people would be willing to do it. Some people are not willing to take that risk. 
and open their home for their kids. So I, I, I recognize that as a factor. But then I also recognize the fact that this was happening. These micro schools were happening before this pandemic in white communities. Right. Yeah. So we're put in this position where we now have to create them and we still aren't taking advantage of that. Right. So forget the fact that even before this, we should have been because we know the disparity rate. We know the school to prison pipeline. We know that we needed to be educating our own children. And even before this pandemic, we should have been creating our own schools. Okay, so to forget all of that, even now in this time where it's imperative, we're still afraid to take that risk. And yet we're seeing white micro schools popping up left and right. So it really is, it's a freedom of thought. So it's not just about uh, classism and racism and sexism and all these things, because that, that plays a part too, because it's usually the woman that is the primary educator, just as she's the primary parent, but we're not going to touch on that right now. But it's also this freedom of thought, right? Because if an impoverished state leads to an impoverished mind, so that ability to even think I can create wealth in creating this micro school, we're not even thinking about it like that in terms of a business. But most of our counterparts are. This is a very viable business. And many of us are not taking advantage of this opportunity. But there's something, there's something else to be considered in, in the, the lack of um, human resources available to support pod schools. And that is a pod school is not going to provide health insurance for an employee. So this is a risk that people who are teachers and educators actually have to consider because as much as they might want to make more money in a pod school where the kids, you know, where the subset of kids that are in that pod school can pay them greater than their salary, there's other risks to be calculated with that type of decision. So that's that, that again, but again, that's just another facet of racism and classism showing up because right. there it is. Like you can't make that. You have to work. You're shackled by, can I afford, if I get sick, can I afford to be not paid by this pod? What do I do when they have to replace me because I get COVID and uh, my pre-existing conditions are exacerbated by that. So there's a lot of things to consider. Um, on both sides for the ones we want to hire for the ones that need to hire someone to support their kids. And all of those things are complicated and coming into play. And what we're trying to do at neuro nurture is be a resource marketplace for people so that they can find the information, find the materials, find the products and the things that have been deliberately created to serve our families and our children but will actually allow you to make an informed decision about what your family can can truly do based on the resources available to our families. For sure. For sure. Oh, Lord. Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> no, no, no. What was I going to say? So, no, I mean, that, that, I was gonna say, so now that leads to the next question. Go ahead, Mel. <laughs> no, um, we were talking about quite a bit about curriculum and, and I love it. I love the fact that we, we've touched on um, why some people are not reaching out to you in regards to making this a business. Um, because I think really the piece that Jennifer, you had mentioned was, you know, people need healthcare um, and that insurance that being comfortable. <laughs> now you have to get uncomfortable. Right. So I think that um, COVID, COVID is a blessing and a curse. And I think it's making people become uncomfortable to get 
to the next level or to the next step in their life or what have you to another chapter. Maybe they didn't think, or maybe that they wanted to do, but now they are forced to do. And I think that um, you bring up a very interesting point because I, now I'm seeing more DISDs, um, you know, with the male African male, African American male paid internship program. Um, and I'm sure there's other internship programs across the country that are looking to do certain things like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's the healthcare that keeps, you know, that, that comfortability. Um, you touched on curriculum. What are we missing or how do we supplement, um, our curriculum with our, with our children? Um, well, that's what I've been doing, um, for the past decade. So, RISE stands for Raising Imhotep Scholars of Excellence, and it is both a supplemental and a foundational curriculum program for parents who are either um, homeschooling parents or they are traditional schooling parents, but they want to provide their children with a cultural or Afrocentric lens to education. And so we provide either digital downloads, virtual resources, or tangible resources that they can use to supplement their child's education for pre-K through fifth at this point. I do this because um, when I began in education, I started at an African-centered private school. So that was my introduction to teaching. And I'm so glad that that's where I started. Since then, I've been through public, private, and charter. I've taught on three different continents. And so I've seen it from every different angle. But I'm glad the the onset of my um, training in education was at this private African-centered school, because I was able to see in a blended classroom model how fusing in as an elemental part and foundation of the curriculum, the importance of knowing who you are is extremely paramount in the students actually performing academically. So we don't relate the two. We think they're two separate things. And most Black families think, if I'm Black, my children are Black, and somehow through osmosis, they're just going to get Black pride. And, was, and as long as I post a picture on Instagram with their fist up and a, in a, some type of black power t-shirt, then I'm doing my job. And they know Martin Luther the King and they know Harriet Tubman and they know Frederick Douglass and I'm good, you know, and that's it. They watch the same movies. We're good. You know, we have this one little toolkit that we use over and over again, generation to generation. But that's not the case. So when I traveled to the Gambia, this was like early 2005, and I was touring the schools there because I was trying to learn, like, how, how is it, even in, even in where um, the socioeconomic divide is much greater, right? And I mean, it's like extreme poverty to the point where the schools I was traveling to did not have a fourth wall. It was just three walls, maybe 50 kids, all ranging in age in one school setting. These kids were able to articulate and answer every oral question I was throwing at them. And they were so disciplined and so prideful and so poised. And the one thing that they kept reiterating is that they know who they are. And so that is the foundation of the RISE curriculum. The kids are able to answer, who am I? When I lived in Singapore and taught there, Singapore is the number one country in education in the world. They have been for a number of years because before they learn ABCs, before they learn math, which they, we know uh, the stereotype about Asians in math and science, the reason why they're so disciplined in those subjects and the reason they're so great in those ways is because the first question they're answering at two years old is what does it mean to be Singaporean? Before they can spell their name, before they can do anything else, they can articulate very well what that means. And so when I replicated that with my own children, what does it mean to be African? 
Because to understand that connection, like the, regardless of the fact that we are here in America, Chester Wiggins said, it does not matter if we were born in Africa, Africa was born in us. So recognizing that connection to the fact that we are the first noted genius, that's who Imhotep was, the first to create mathematics, writing, astronomy, astrology, when you have that connection and you know that's what you stem from and the importance of that, you can understand the importance of the application of all these academics. So we address the whole child in the RISE curriculum. So we do offer that supplemental support because there are many parents who, like we've discussed, cannot, for whatever reason, afford to homeschool their children or send their children to micro school. They still need something. So we still offer support to traditional schooling parents um, as well as homeschooling and micro-schooling parents through the RISE curriculum for that reason. Okay. And then my background is from is research. So for me, my natural inclination is to assess the field, analyze the, analyze the offerings, and figure out what I think meets that, that ner- the, the developmental need of kids based on what we know to understand what we know about how children develop cultural esteem. And so for me, the concept of neuro nurture really is based in creating a safe marketplace where products reflect that consideration at the core. What is it, what does it mean to serve black families? What does it mean to educate black children? What does it mean to edify them and support them in their learning journey? So when I met Talitha, I don't know how many years ago, I was immediately drawn to the RISE curriculum because it is intentional in its focus and it is intentional in its scope and teaching them who they are. So for me, that is just an absolute magnetic attraction and so there are other curriculum out there um and if you go on neuronurture.org you'll see other options but highlighted in the center is the rise curriculum because i believe in what they're doing i believe in what she's building um a small auxiliary part of what she's doing however i can support it because i think that it's critical to have her approach be something that if you can't be, if you can't do the curriculum as the core, then you access the supplemental aspects of what she has to offer. Mm-hmm. And if for some reason Rise is not speaking to a family or accessible to them or whatever, then you can search the Neural Nurture database and you can see other safe materials that I've curated to to support you in your homeschooling or your virtual schooling or even traditional schooling. But you know, I definitely have those products that I think are critical. Um, and highlight it. I guess in both situations, is there is it kind of a tailored made or customized um, curriculum depending on the family? Yes. So I, I appreciate. It. So Jennifer helps me because Rise is not for everyone, and I never promote it as one that's for everyone. If you do not value an African centered lens, and there are many of us that don't, and I'm not shaming one way or the other. I'm saying that many of us, we, have, we were raised in a Eurocentric um, and indoctrinated into a Eurocentric education. So most people just are aligned with that because it's comfortable and that's what we've been taught to do. So RISE is not for everyone. But what Jennifer does is offer this screening to say, okay, let me do the initial work for you of digging through and finding those safe faces 
where it rises in the line with you here, something else that might, um, that is a little more, you know, leaning to your liking, but still safe for the development of your child, whole, whole child. Um, with Rise, we customize based on learning style. So before mm-hmm. I do anything, before I offer any type of curriculum um, support, I assess your child's learning style. It's very personal. So that is always the first thing is the LSA, the learning style assessment. I meet with you, I meet with your family. And in that learning style assessment, I ask every family this fundamental question. Tell me the vision you have for the child that will leave your home. And we start there. The child that will leave your home, fully developed, whole and well, who is that person? Describe that person to me. And I'm not talking about their profession. I'm not talking about what they're going to major in. I'm talking about the person, their character development, the way they think, how they approach problems. Describe that person to me in full detail. And depending upon the age of the child, I ask the child too. And then we scaffold all the way back to wherever they are now. And we develop a plan step by step all the way to that day. And we matriculate together until we get to that point where we see that child leaving the home. And we're all celebrating like, yes! <laughs> what we thought. And there are times when that vision has to be adjusted and that's okay. We have to pivot. They display an interest or a prowess in something we didn't anticipate. Those things happen. So we adjust or they display um, some type of learning challenge that we didn't anticipate. So we adjust for those things as well. So there is not a whole, here you go, spit out this full curriculum. This will take you through 12th grade. You don't need any more. We do this step-by-step month by month and we adjust every month to get to that picture or something very close to it as it changes. Mm-hmm. And then Butcher has a preschool curriculum and it is um it is more of a we have a, a a global perspective on the on the preschool curriculum and it's for ages two and a half to five and it is it is definitely easy. What I what I teach my parents are ways to customize it based on your child, based on your child's level and interest and engagement with what's in the curriculum. And I offer options and different levels and all of that. But the curriculum is based on exposing the children to the world in an effort to um, educate children to be global citizens. And that's not in contrast to RISE at all. It's really in compliment. But it's just something that I had developed before I ever met Talitha. And I used it in the Neuro Nurture flagship school, which was Hill Point Preparatory in Jersey City. And it was the micro school that I opened there. And, um, and it was a beautiful, it is a beautiful curriculum that helps children understand how they are different and the same to children all around the world that look like them and don't. So it is more of a multi-methodology approach and fostered out of a, of a desire to bring children together on a, on a, on an intimate basis through experiential learning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think Talitha, I think the initial question that you ask families during that interview process is a very deep one. Yes, it is. Um, because it's not like, I mean, you got to really sit and think about that. And then you have to sit and think about yourself, right? I feel anyway, you know, if you were to throw that, if I, if we were to interview together, I mean, that's like some like, yo, okay, you asked me that question. You know what? 
we're going to talk tomorrow <laughs> about this, right? You know, like I can't, I can't process this in the, you know, 30 or 30 minutes or hour. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's almost like, um, I, I, I think you would have to think about yourself mm-hmm. and what kind of model you are to your kids. Because I mean, I feel like the traditional answer would be, well, I just want to grow up and create morally sound kids. Mm-hmm. All right. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I guess do you, I, I'm assuming, I don't know, I can't talk for you. Uh, does that stump a lot of families? Well, I always prep them just like I'm doing. I'm hoping the listening, listeners to your show who are listening, who may, you know, consult with me um, or find me to consult with them um, are hearing this question. So they're pondering this. But this is something every parent is thinking about this from the time they started the adoption process or the conception process. You've been thinking about your children your whole life if you wanted to be a parent before you became a parent. So formalizing it and articulating it, no, maybe you haven't done that as much, but you've been thinking about it. And I have some other probing questions that I follow it up with that kind of lead to that answer. So I scaffold to get to the answer. Um, And so even when I ask that directly, yes, that does stump, like that's a bit overwhelming. But when I start asking the scaffolding questions, I can get to it. And then I tell them at the end what that looks like. And they're like, okay, yeah. That's the one, you know, and, and I want to make it very clear. We cannot order our kids on a menu. We cannot just, we can do all the quote unquote right things and still not get anything like what we envisioned. And so I make parents very well aware of that. You, you have absolutely no control because what we do at the end of the conversation is now that you have this vision, we're going to work towards it as long as your child is in agreement. And that's always the caveat. As long as your child is in agreement with this vision, We're going to work towards this, but be prepared to throw it all away. Be prepared to not have anything like this at the end and be okay with that. As long as what you're pouring in and your intentions and what you are pouring in is greatness and excellence, you're going to get that. You're going to get greatness and excellence. It just may look very different from what you expected. And we're gonna make sure, because the child is a very critical part of um, the RISE curriculum. They have say so, they have autonomy, they are equally decisive in the decision-making process of what they learn and do. Even my two-year-olds, we have two-year-olds in the conversation, and like, no, I don't wanna do that. Okay, well, let's talk about why. Because there's a reason for that. It's not just defiance. And if it is defiance, why is that? Let's understand all of these things, right? Um, so, yes, it, it is a very deep question, that philosophical question. And you're right. We do end up delving into the parents' learning styles and their environmental conditions and how everything shaped them. And, oh, my goodness, when it's a two-parent um, household, that gets into some all kind of other stuff. It's stuff. I bet pretty deep. It feels like that folks folks gonna come out one counseling after that. It it gets pretty deep. I do need to kind of partner with the marriage counselor. uh, (laughs) And after you see me, I'm gonna have you see. You know, because it does get deep. Because a lot of us are trying to parent the us out of our children subconsciously, or we're trying to parent in a way that we think we were failed in being parented. And so we're trying to do and undo all these things and that's guiding us instead of listening to the child and allowing them to guide the parental process, which may be completely different from anything we've experienced or envisioned at all. So it's a lot, it is deep. 
But we mm-hmm. get into part of teaching the whole child. It gets into all of that. And so right? I think to what am I saying? I feel like Talitha touched on something really critical there, which is how customizable is a curriculum for your needs? How responsive is the company to making sure that your child is along with the intentions of the curriculum? And again, another reason I love RISE is that it's customizable. Same for neuro nurture for the preschool curriculum. Again, I think it's critical that it's customizable because I have been fielding a lot of requests and interest from families that are asking me about specific curriculum that are on the market right now that are not customizable, that are not inclusive. Um, they and, and some of them are actually quite violent to black learners. And um, and and I, I don't I won't name any because I won't know the show. I no. <laughs> don't do it don't do it <laughs> I won't do it because I don't want but but I will say that when I come across a family that comes to me and says like how you know what about this curriculum because that's the, that's the way people come to me I have I, this is what I have what do you think about that can you help me figure out if this is right then I can address that specific curriculum based on what I've researched about it and the majority that top 10 list that Talitha listed Majority of them are are the ones that I'm talking about that can be quite violent towards black children. Um, they are definitely not inclusive. And, and so, while they might be customizable, they're not culturally customizable. Even the, the book, like the customizing resources that they provide, they're usually quite Eurocentric and stereotypical when they do include black literature. So it is it is why I created a safe marketplace so that I can say big old banner go to rise, but if you don't <laughs> then here's a list of things that are safe because that list of top 10 are, they they are not they are not usually safe. Are you approaching parents saying, you know, more or less like listen, this is this is quite violent. I don't I don't know. Speak- on other, I don't know who, which one of you right. I don't speak about other curricula unless uh, I'm asked specifically about something. I just, I don't have the energy to put towards that. Um, but when parents ask me, I do tell parents very clearly, here's the one advantage I think Jennifer and I both have because in, um, Jennifer, you correct me if I'm wrong in this assumption, both of us are in a place of privilege where we don't have to make a dollar in this way. We don't have to in the sense of we don't have to be um, avaricious in trying to push our agenda on parents where it does not fit. So I will quickly tell a parent, you know what, this my curriculum is not best for you. You know, I, I don't need to make a dollar that badly that I have to try to sell what I offer to someone um, that I know is basically going to be a problem uh, later on because it just does not fit their philosophy, their methodology, anything. And so I'm quick to say, okay, this is not the best fit for you. And I can refer them to Jen. That's why I love what she does because I'm like, look, Rise isn't the best thing for you, but here is a place you can go. You can go to Nora Nurture and find other resources that may complement what you need a little bit better um, than Rise. But I don't need to speak ill of anything else. I don't. I just, mm-hmm. I just don't have the energy for it. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, what I find when when I encounter families that come to me and the is that it's a lack of tools, not so much the materials. So mm-hmm. it, is, it is an internal thing. That part that Talitha spoke about, about 
our goal of trying to teach something out of our kid that we feel like came from us or the opposite. That's usually what I see is that people are stuck in a repeat cycle and they need new tools. They're duplicating something that they really didn't want to duplicate, like they're copying exactly what they do in public school and they don't want to do that, but they don't have the tools to break out of that cycle. So what we do with our neuro nurture trainings is we do support teachers learning how to teach differently, parents learning how to support differently. And that's why we call it neuro nurture. And I even call it nurture Katie. That's a word that I coined because it goes beyond the material to what is the deeper impact of what you're learning. And these are not necessarily things that you can get from one curriculum. So sometimes somebody might go to Talitha because they want the history component, but they want another, they want to do Montessori math because for them, that's something that they can support their, to support their child. Based mm-hmm. on the best works. For I mean, so with that being said, we're talking customizable. Are we just, you know, for example, giving parents like a, just a practical example of something and say, hey, you know what? Washing the dishes targets language, targets five mode. I mean, are you introducing it like such? Yes. So the training course for Neural Nurture includes an introduction to five different pedagogies that are common in early childhood education. So we talk about Montessori, we talk about Reggio Emilia, we talk about cooperative learning, we talk about, and I could go on and go on about the, the different things we cover. And the reason why we do this is so that you have a tool set. Because even if you're using RISE curriculum, if you have, and I, I won't go too deep into this, but if you have a visual learner or a tactile learner, you are going to want to go, okay, I can support it with what Talitha has provided because she knows the specific learning child of, style of my child. But you can't get Talitha on the phone 24-7. She cannot <laughs> respond to you if you say, I used everything on this page um, and every material manipulative that you advised me through this customized curriculum. But now what? You can't do that, right? So you need a set of tools that you can access yourself. And that's what Neural Nurture does. That's why we work so well in tandem together. Because mm-hmm. neural nurture is going to provide you with the tools to understand what Reggio Emilia can bring to a rise curriculum if you need to supplement what, based on what your child is not grasping. So it is helping you learn how to use these approaches, how to use these philosophies to support any type of learning environment that your child is in. Mm-hmm. So that you can get, you know, it's more of that concept of like teaching a person to fish versus mm-hmm. you know, Oh, oh, Talitha, did you have anything to add to that? We're saying a lot, what we have been saying back and forth is that I'm the what and she's the how. The how, okay, yeah. okay. Um, you know, I've been having to do both, oh, and so I'm glad that. I can be, okay, listen, here, are, here is the material, here's what you, based on what your child has demonstrated, what your child is capable of learning and what they have shown interest in learning. So I never mm-hmm. heard anything like, what this is what your child should learn, because every child will let us know okay. They should learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so here are the materials that your child is interested in and has shown great um, prowess in learning. And here are some ways in which you, they can do that. So I give that basic, you know, understanding based on your child's learning style. Here are the ways to execute it. If you need a little bit more in depth, because Jennifer's right, I'm not available 24 hours a day. Um, that's where Jennifer's resources come in. Like, okay, because not every 
and, and this is not, this is like a firm understanding. Like we have all had those teachers that were like, why are you here? You should not be teaching, right? And there are some parents who recognize they are parents, but they are not formal educators in that sense. And so my job too is to help parents see how they are educators, because it may not be in the same way that I teach my children. A lot of people look at my videos and look at how I engage with my children. And I'm like, oh, how can I do that? Maybe that's not how you're supposed to do that. That's the type of person I am. That's the type of parent I am. That's the type of educator I am. That's what works best for the children that chose me. That may not be what works best for you and yours. And so helping parents understand how they can execute the same curriculum for their children, not just based on their child's learning style, but based on their own teaching style and the best way that fits their families, that's something we're able to help them see as well, because that is, it has to be customized on different levels. Sure. Sure. And does that kind of include um, children with special needs? So yes, it does in the sense that just assessing the learning styles, I do have children, students who have learning challenges and learning differences. That is not my specialization. And so I, just as I'm referring out and, or resources like Jennifer to support that, I refer out for that as well. So if there's a specific need or specific learning challenge, I have specialists that I call on and to use as support for those particular needs and issues. Cool, cool. One of the, one of the things that I found over the years of um, kind of exposing families to a broad understanding of different pedagogies or different approaches philosophies and learning is that they pick up um, they pick up ways to support their children and, and again you need a specialist but you can also pick up ways to support their kids by pulling from these different ideologies so for example Reggio Emilia is a child-led philosophy comes out of a war-torn Italy that wanted to figure out how to help these children heal after seeing multiple traumas and literally living in rubble. Parents came together. It's almost kind of like what's happening now. Right. And they literally built schools out of the brick rubble in the streets. And then they said, well, how do we not force the kids into what we think they want to learn? How do we support them in, um, by following them and supporting their learning through guidance? instead of us dragging them along, like, say, the way traditional school does with a whole outline that doesn't reflect the children. And so I talk a lot about Reggio Emilia because they are an example. And while it's obviously Eurocentric, I don't use it as this is what you do. It is a model that you can replicate with a curriculum like RISE. Because in Reggio Emilia, it's called documentation, where you photograph and you take lots of notes on what your child received from what was ex what was in the exposure space that day mm -hmm. and then what they retained and what they were able to tell you what are their next desired steps and that's a series of that's a way of guiding kids that's that really works regardless of the learning difficulties that are there or the abilities that are there because when you're following a child they're going to lead you where they can go and when you're supporting their growth they're going to you know you're going to be doing it in a sensitive way that respects that child individually. And that's what, that's just one example of how we use the different philosophies to support different learners. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, within ours, we use um, 
Montessori daily, major regalia every day. We use unschooling. So we so all of those are the methodologies. That's the how, and we implement all of them. Um, what I have coined as you know our method, our Anibale method, is this more communal sense of there is still structure, there's still discipline, there's still pride, there's still um, sort of a mandated outline of expectations but it is also still led by your desires and your prowess. So my expectations are very clear with my children. When I, um, and I ask them, when I leave the room and I say some things that I expect from them, I leave the room with the question, do you all understand my expectations? And I'm always waiting for an affirmative. And I ask them to repeat them back to me. What are my expectations of you? And so that way I know we have a clear agreement and understanding of what's supposed to happen when I, when I come back, when I meet you again. So they have expectations right now of things that they're doing. And I'm, I can see them, you know, visualize my window, like I'm seeing them checking off the list of the things that they have to do. But they also have this choice time that they understand and they can guide themselves through meeting those expectations. They don't have to do it in any certain order as long as it's all done by the time we meet again. And if there is an issue, they can communicate that with me as well. But those, so it's, it's a blend of understanding because we know as black families, uh, we still operate with a set of excellence and excellence and expectation and excellence in how we model ourselves and how we present ourselves to the world. So they understand that and they understand sort of that switch coding. So that's our personal unwilly method. But um, it's clear that we use several different methodologies when we're doing academic instruction. So, you know, mm-hmm. we pull from everything. Sure. So about so many different, you know, styles of education, pod schooling. Um, we talked a little bit on like special education and unschooling. Are we missing something? I mean, we talked about homeschooling. We talked a little bit about virtual as well as incorporating, um, you know, ourselves as being black and the importance of being African. Is there is there something that we're missing as well that we need to be taking into consideration with our children? Or even maybe there's a, a educational type of discipline that a, a mother is not familiar with um, that we might be missing the mark about. The one thing I think about virtual schooling that I think we always have to keep in mind is that unlike homeschooling, um, whether you're purchasing a curriculum or you're creating your own, virtual schooling is controlled by the school district those who created that complete platform are determining how much of your child's time is being dedicated to their imperatives. Mm -hmm. And that's going to always introduce a a layer of stress and resource depletion that is not necessarily the same when you have created or deliberately chosen in homeschooling for yourself. Because with homeschooling, I always say homeschooling, the first part of homeschooling is home. So you're immediately choosing what reflects your home, your culture in your home, your everything about your home, what works best for you. And a program like Rise allows you and Neuro Nurture allow you to allow you to customize your day based on those home based values. Right. But a virtual school where you're buying into K-12 or you're doing, you know, one of these virtual school platforms, you do see a lot more burnout with the parents and a lot more anxiety with the kids and parents as well, because they are not the ones determining the day is being determined by someone that is completely unfamiliar with your family and possibly even your culture. 
Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we have to be aware of that, um, and, and we talked about this a little bit is, and this is across the board and everything, is to beware of the imposter syndrome. We are played with it as parents, where we think we are not capable, we are not enough. And so we buy into most of the parents that are buying into these regimented, rigorous, um, structured virtual learning platform platforms. They're doing that because they don't think they are capable of educating their own children in a more freeform way. So like, I need something. I need, I need this nine to three schedule where they have to sign on or really it's earlier than that. Some of the virtual programs I've seen, they're starting as early as seven o'clock on a virtual call. I my, neither of my children are functioning well at seven o'clock in the morning. They just aren't. Um, so to put them on a call at that early is just ridiculous to me for my family. Um, but they prefer that because then they can say, because every parent, this is our prayer, is that we don't want to irreparably damage our children, right? So every decision we're making, we're making with all the information that we have, with all the resources that we have, we're just trying to make sure we're getting it right. But if I can outsource this and use this curriculum that's structured, then I can't be blamed if something's wrong. It's, it's the school. I did, I, did the right, I did the right thing. I signed them up in the school. This is what everybody else is doing. This is what they're telling me works. This is what the state is telling me I'm supposed to do. So if something goes awry, it's not me. It's his school. And homeschooling, it's all on you. And parents, that's a lot of pressure. But it's also a lot of freedom because you are capable. Your children chose you for a reason. You are absolutely capable. And everything that you know, you can impart to them in a way that fits both of you, just in conversation sometimes. My daughter and I, she learns most of, most of the things that she knows now, she learns by reading and by conversations with me. Her probing helps me delve into things I haven't even, I, I forgot I knew, but she pulls it out. Like, oh, okay. Yes, that's what we're talking about that now. And I never tell her, oh, you're not ready to learn that. If she's asking, she's ready to know. And we talk about whatever it is. I never, I don't, she doesn't know the levels that she's on in terms of grade, but she's technically in fifth grade, but she's operating at 11th, 12th grade level across every subject. She doesn't know. That doesn't matter to her. She's just operating because this is what her brain is inquiring about. So it doesn't, I know and recognize that she probably will never be able to go into a traditional school setting because they just would not be able to teach her at her age and the level that they think she's supposed to be in. She doesn't know that. She doesn't care. She's just curious. So she asks questions and she learns. Same with my son. So for us, I had to learn to trust myself. And it took a lot. I'm saying this because I know this from experience. The first year of homeschooling, I did use one of those aforementioned curricula that I will not say again. And it was highly stressful. And my daughter and I both had anxiety attacks. And we were, I was steadily measuring my success based on hers and what other parents who were doing the same program were doing. And we were all flailing. I mean, it was just, it was so, it was so difficult. And it was so, I mean, I learned everything there was possible to know about Rome. Never once 
was Africa even mentioned? Not one country. And you know how closely those are related. Like, couldn't you even bring in Hannibal a little bit? Like, we can bring up Hannibal a little bit? Like, not, you're not even, like, how are you going to talk about Rome at all without talking about Cleopatra? And then when you talk about her, you're not going to reference that she's black. Like, it's just so much. Yeah. So, you know, in doing that, but I was forced to do that. So I thought, I believed I was forced to do those things because this is what they laid out for me. And they didn't know my child. They knew nothing about my child. They knew nothing about me. But they said, this is what your child is supposed to learn. And so I did it. And it was very stressful. And so I just want to empower parents to understand that you are capable. You are enough. We have resources that can help assist you in doing and executing how you want to teach your children and what to teach your children. But you are enough and you can do this. And no, you don't have to do it like you've seen it done at all. You do not need a desk and a chair. Your classroom doesn't have to look like mine. You don't even have to have a classroom. Your home is a classroom. They're learning every time they're engaging with you. Um, so that's the biggest thing I want to, to address with parents. Just kind of silence the imposter syndrome um, and the belief that you are incapable because you really are. We talked about this in my first visit with you guys. We talked about the myths of homeschooling. And Talitha just talked about one of the myths, which is that you have to be like a super, super, I know everything parent. And that's not true. And that's where the imposter syndrome will get you because you're like, well, I didn't do so well in math. How can I teach my kid math? Guess what? You're not the only person out there and you don't have to pay every educator. There are people that are willing to barter. There are people that are willing to take where you're strong and have you be the educator. There are just so many different formats. So when she talks about this free thinking, it doesn't just apply to how you educate your kids, but also how you prepare as an educator for your children. Realize that you can think outside of the box and find support that is more, it doesn't have to be financially based, how you compensate someone for supporting you. Um, there are communities that share this information widely. Black homeschooling networks on Facebook are massive. And they share resources. There, there are black homeschooling co-ops where they share virtual memberships to um, different resources online. And you have to pay a fraction of the price, whereas you might pay a hundred here. It might be ten dollars for a full year on these co-ops. So the myth of isolation, the myth of you being in a silo in your homeschool, is one that we touched on in that episode season one. And I just want people to go back and look at that because you don't have to believe in those myths. You're not isolated. You're part of a big community, a school district, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell my kids, I don't know all the time. I say, I don't know. Let's find out together. All the time. But I, because they have curiosities I don't have. So I've never wanted to know the answer to that question. I, I just honestly did not want to know if the moon was cold. I just, I never was curious. So let's find that out together. I've, I've never, never been interested in that. But let's find it out together. I don't know, you know? So these are, these are, these are questions that come up and I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable in telling them I don't know, but we don't end it there. It's always let's find out together because even when I probe them with questions, I affirm them in saying, okay to say, I don't know. And then follow up with, Let's find out together. You know, it's okay not to know. Just don't be comfortable staying there. You know, it's okay to acknowledge that you're there, but let's move through it and get to the information, to the knowledge together. I just want to encourage everybody to use RISE, to use Neuro Nurture, to figure out the best for family, to 
outsmart and overcome the oppression that has been attempted on your child's life. And I know that sounds revolutionary to say it, but the <laughs> fact of it, there are some things that are causing this expansion of the achievement gap in COVID. And one of them is something simple like access to technology where one household is sharing one computer or the Wi-Fi or the internet signal is non-existent to weak because now so many people are burdening these systems where it's very difficult even if you're using a tablet, right? So there are some things that are still in existence where infrastructure was not developed equally in all communities, but we can work around that. And RISE, Neural Nurture, we work together in order to help you best customize the situation to outsmart the oppression in your life. Because your oppression might be different. We've said, both of us have said and agreed, we come from a different privileged setting. But I grew up in a system that's different from where I live now. I was on, I grew up on WIC. These are not things that we are foreign, that are foreign to us. But they are maybe not things that are present right now. But that's not to say that we cannot still contribute to the reality of your of your realm and the things that are seeking to try to limit your achievement in your life. We are uniquely caring and invested in obliterating those obstacles for you and your family. I love that. For I love sure. That. I think your experience can kind of help um, relate more so um, to those parents that don't know, you know, mm-hmm. I think about like, you know, back to the private school example that I was, that I shared earlier. I was like, well, you know, I went to private school when I was younger, but for, I for sure didn't, it was kind of a, a sister act kind of private school, you know, what I'm saying? sister act two kind of private school where, you know, I mean, it, it was just in the middle of, you know, a. uh, uh a um, area that was, you know, dominated literally by um, immigrants and, you know, just a, and that's what it was. But, you know, we never operated as a silo, never operate as privilege. Because trust me, a lot of us was not, we didn't grow up in privilege. Makes sense. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I think you just so, go to the, um, for those that are listening, that there's several resources not to get frustrated um, and if you are, that there's resources to help with that mental frustration. You know, you're not in it by yourself. Um, and if there's someone, you know, the idea to step outside the box is kind of like, I guess I'd say the perfect time to do so. What a way to step outside the box and try something, try something different. Um, where can people find, find more about RISE and, and reach out to you in regards to your curriculum and maybe hopefully become one of the, <laughs> your micro schools yeah, so they can find, Yes, I would, I would love that. <laughs> our, our first cohort is starting in August, so I would love more um, micro school entrepreneurs. And I, I do, it is not lost on me that we are not free enough to be entrepreneurs. I get that. Um, that we don't have the freedom to even be an entrepreneur in many cases. And yet entrepreneurship is the backbone of economic empowerment. And we absolutely need that. So that conundrum is not lost on me, but they can find me at raisingmhotep.com. 
uh, and that's Imhotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P, um, RaisingImhotep.com. Or the other support group that we have is a Facebook group called Rise Educational Village. And they can simply join that group and that Jennifer is present in that group too. And it's also a place where people can exchange resources and just offer support to one another, whether they're using the Rise curriculum or not. It's just a place for support from other parents who are in this situation. There are traditional schooling parents, homeschooling parents, and micro-schooling parents in that group who are all offering support and resources to one another. So either of those could work as a place to find me. So RaisingMLTEP.com or the Rise Educational Village Facebook group. Yeah, so Neuro Nurture can, you can access our resources on neuronurture.org. Um, but our temporary site is a long one that I shared with Natasha. So our temporary site is where you're going to go into neuronurture.org is fully active. We're still working with the the background, like the, the back office part that connects. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, on that site, you will see uh, something that I'm developing, which is a database of safe schools. And they are pod and micro schools that are deliberately anti-racist, deliberately inclusive. Um, and there are different facets of categories that you'll see in there. So if you have a pod school, that, I don't know if I said podcast, but if you have a pod school or a micro school, regardless of the curriculum you use or the approach, if it is a space that is um, inclusive deliberately for, of Black culture, Black children, then neuronurture.org is seeking people to register, to highlight their pod schools so that we can start to find these pod schools that are safe spaces. We will then look at the pod schools for you and kind of look up, all right, is it is it safe or not? Is it inclusive or not? Um, and then we'll be releasing that database as it grows um, month by month. We'll add, as we research those pod schools, we'll add them to the database, um, hoping to release that database in August with people being able to search it and look at it through zip code and find out what pod schools exist in their area. They're not always pod schools that you can join. They might just be pod schools that you can reach out to and ask them questions to help you support your own pod school or create your own micro school. Um, But the point is to demystify and to make it easier to find pod schools that are for us and even by us. So um, neuronurture.org is going to be your place for all things safe um, that are going to be as vetted as possible and just a place where you can find resources that are speaking directly to the experience of being a black family in America. Wow. Thank you both. I mean, the wealth of information on this episode right now um, is timeless. And I mean, even if there are mothers who are expecting, um, I hope that they listen to this uh, a few times throughout their time, you know, before they, quote unquote, send their children off to to school or get to that point. Um, Thank you. Thank you both for being on our show today. And and thank you, Jennifer, for coming back. Thank you, ladies. Yes. I love you here. (laughs) (laughs) We love you too. We love you too. Oh, Lord. Well, let's continue the conversation through our listener comments and questions in our Facebook group. Please be sure to check out our show notes and we will provide you with links to both Rise and Neural Nurture and information on various articles from today. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And of course, feel free to email us at mahoganymomology at gmail.com 
and check out our website at www.mahoganymomology.com where you can find previous episodes, i.e. <laughs> Jennifer's previous episode <laughs> and some merchandise. Until next time, this is Mel. And I'm Tosh. And we thank you for listening to Mahogany Mammology. Bye-bye.